Good morning. My name is Josh. I serve as a pastor here. It's great to be with you today. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn in them to the Gospel of John. This morning we are continuing our series through this book. We're calling the series Believe. And uh, we are walking through the events surrounding the life and ministry of Jesus Christ as told by through the perspective of the disciple whom he loved, the disciple whose name is John. And this week we are coming to the end of the prologue that John gives us before he jumps into the narrative of what actually took place. He's going to do that in verse 19. But this morning we are going to consider together verses 14 through 18 where John is going to sort of round off his accounting of uh, what, what the framework of this book is. What's his goal in writing? What does he want us to see and understand through the events that he is going to describe for us? Uh, I had a seminary professor say, there's two types of water that are hard to see through to the bottom, muddy water and deep water. And he said, the gospel of John, it's not, it's not muddy. The water's not muddy. In fact, it's, it's unmistakably clear. But that clarity with which John writes, it can, it can lure us into thinking that we can easily grasp the totality of what he's trying to communicate. But what we find when we wade into those waters is that the deeper we get into it, the deeper we see that the the bottom is beneath us. And perhaps nowhere is that more true than in John's theological accounting of the incarnation, Jesus coming in the flesh. You know, it is, he, he describes it in such simple terms. It's so simple that we teach it to our kids, we rehearse it every Christmas, we do skits about it, right? Uh, It reminds me of a story I heard recently of a a little kid who had his heart set, Uh, his ambition was aimed at playing Joseph in uh, the church Christmas pageant. And so he practiced up, he had all the lines memorized, he auditioned, and then injustice of injustices, he was cast not as Joseph, but instead as the innkeeper. And so he did, you know, the thing that any of us really would have done, he vowed revenge and he bided his time, okay? (laughs) He waited like a snake in the tall grass for his chance to exact vengeance and and exact his vengeance he did. On the day of the performance, they're going through the story. Mary and Joseph uh, come to the inn, and they arrive, and they knock on the door, and they ask the question that we're all so familiar with now. Do you have any room here at the inn for Mary and Joseph? She is great with child. And everyone was expecting the story to go to plan. He was supposed to say, no, there's no room, but you can check out the manger out back. What they weren't expecting was what he actually did, which is to step into the front of the stage and with a great flourish says, why, yes, of course, we have plenty of room. Come on in, make yourselves comfortable. (laughs) Which, if you know the story, kind of derails the whole thing, right? So needless to say, utter chaos ensued, and we never actually got to the part where Jesus was born, which is sad. What a very, very poorly behaved boy. Kids, let that be a lesson to you. Uh, (laughs) The point of that is, I don't want, and more importantly, I don't think John wants us to allow the truth of the incarnation to just become mere story. I don't think he wants it to just be, be sentimentality. Don't we battle that at the Christmas season? We don't want it to just be sentimentalism because there's something so incredibly significant, so deeply world-shiftingly important that's going on in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, and he does not want us to miss it. And so he's going to describe it in grand, majestic theological terms. 
Let's give our attention to the Word of God. If you're willing and able, would you please stand with me? We stand under this Word. It is authoritative on our life. We don't stand in authority over it. We stand under its authority as it speaks God's truth, His self-disclosure to us. John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. This is God's word. Surely the grass withers and the flower falls, but not the word of God. No, the word of God endures forever. And may he write its truth on our hearts as we consider it together. Amen. Please take your seats. John wants us to see in these Versus the significance of Jesus coming. And I want to I draw our attention to three, three points, three purposes, three significant reasons why Jesus came and what he accomplished for us. First, a revealed glory, a present God, and abundant grace. A revealed glory, a present God, and abundant grace. Glory, presence, and grace. Those are our three points. That's where we're going. First, glory. Verse 14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. The glory of God is, is, his, is his weightiness. It's his substance. It his, it's, the, it's the infinite, expansive beauty of his perfections. And John says, we've seen that in the coming of Jesus Christ. And you know, seeing the glory of God is something that we were created for as humans, and it's, it's the greatest need that we have is to have our view of God's glory restored to us. Paul Tripp says that as human beings, there's something in us that makes us hardwired for glory. We see it in our, in our, our, our innate, unlearned response to beautiful things, right? You don't have to tell anybody how to respond when you see a beautiful sunrise or when you stand on the beach in 30A and look out into the Gulf of Mexico, or when you stand on the, on the edge of the Grand Canyon and look out into the expanse, there's something in your soul that just knows there's glory being hinted at here. We were made to see it and know it. We don't just see it in beauty, though. We, we, we see our need for the glory of God in our suffering as well. There's something about suffering that reminds us that, that we need God. We need God's glory in a particular way. We had an elder meeting just this past week, and we spent the first hour of that meeting, as, as we often do, just, just getting current on all the different pastoral care needs that exist in the church, and then, and then praying together, pleading with the Lord to move in many of those situations. And, and there, there are just significant needs represented in this church body. I think you know that. We're praying for people who have prodigal children, people who have received dead, just devastating health diagnoses people whose children are estranged from them, marriages that seem broken to the point, humanly speaking, where it's just beyond repair. We were dealing with the things that Pastor Zach Eswine calls inconsolable things, miseries that might not be relieved until heaven comes home, things that, that only 
Jesus can fix. And as we're considering these things, as we're praying about these things, our, our hearts just, our hearts cry out because we know in the deepest parts of who we are that if we're going to make it in this world, we need a hope that's rooted in something bigger, something sturdier, something more significant, more lasting than ourselves or our circumstances. Maybe that's where some of you are today. Maybe you're experiencing that right now. Well, about 1,500 years before John wrote these words, there was another leader in Israel who experienced that need for the glory of God. His name was Moses. And if you've been around church at all, you know Moses a lot. He actually shows up in our text today. And if you know Moses, you know that Moses was the leader that God appointed to lead Israel out of captivity, out of slavery in Egypt. And so he, he did many signs and wonders with God's help. He led God's people out in this just amazing story of God's rescue. And then he takes Israel to the bottom of Mount Sinai where he goes up the mountain to meet with God and God communicates himself to him. He gives him the law of God. It's this incredible moment where God marks out Israel as his his special people. He relates to no other nation the way that he relates to Israel. And as this beautiful thing is happening on top of the mountain, what's happening at the bottom of the mountain? Anybody know? Israel is taking their gold and their precious metals and they're forming a golden calf. They're making an idol. They're bowing down in front of it and they're worshiping and they're saying, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. And they're sinning and they're reveling in their rebellion against God. This is adultery spiritually. And it's adultery on your wedding night. Just a terrible betrayal of the God who's delivered them out of captivity. And Moses comes down the mountain as God's instrument of justice. He breaks the tablets of the law, throws them down on the ground and shatters them. He brings God's swift judgment. 3,000 people die. A plague is brought into the camp. Israel suffers under this plague is the judgment of God, just like their captors experienced in Israel. Israel is no different. They're no better than the people who had enslaved them. God actually says he's considering removing his presence from his people. And it's only the intercession of Moses that keeps that from moving forward. And if we had more time, we'd go into the mysteries of that. I don't understand how all that works. But God, God, plead, God Moses pleads with God for the sake of his people. And God relents. And Moses goes back up the mountain. And in the midst of, of this grief, this desperation to see God move, Moses makes this request of God in Exodus thirty three eighteen. He says, God... Would you please show me your glory? He doesn't say, make me the leader these people need. He doesn't say, change these, these people, although he'll say that in other places. He, he says in this moment, God, just show me your glory. I need a glimpse of it. I need the, the unobscured, unveiled weightiness of your infinite beauty and of your perfections. And you know what's interesting about this? This is one of the few times in human history where a desperate person has asked for the thing that they actually need. Moses needed to see and know the glory of God just like you and I do. It's what we're created for. That's why when, when God gives Aaron a benediction to say over his people in Numbers chapter 6, it's a benediction. I've, I've spread my hands and said this over you many times in our time together in this room. Aaron would stretch out his hands and he would say, he would say, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon you and give you his peace. 
That was the hope of God's people throughout history, was that we would get to see the face of God as what we're longing for. But because of sin, our, our, our desires and our understanding of that is distorted. And so we go after false glories. To answer that glory hunger in our souls, we, we attach our souls to things that we think will give us that experience of glory, but they never seem to deliver. So we look forward in the approval of people. We cultivate online personas on, on social media to show how great our life is and how awesome we are. You know, Google just released uh, some information that, that said somewhere in the neighborhood of 93 million selfies are taken every day. One, that's kind of crazy. Like, don't take selfies. Don't do that. <laughs> I make a lot of fun of selfies, and for good reason. But at the same time, what's happening when you, when you take a picture of yourself and you upload it to social media and you, you, you wait for people to like it and to comment on it? Looking good, girl, or whatever. I don't know. <laughs> You don't want me to comment on your selfie, clearly. <laughs> we look forward in man's approval. We look for, for, we look for glory in, in expressions of sexuality. Pornography just destroys souls. It destroys relationships. G.K. Chesterton very famously said that the man who knocks on the door of a brothel, he's not looking for sex. He's looking for God. We're looking for something to, to satisfy that glory hunger in our souls. And, and here's the point that John's trying to make. We have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the Father. When we see Jesus, we are seeing the glory of God manifest among us. Jesus said it in John chapter 14, verse 9. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. He says here in verse 18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he, Jesus, has made him known. That word for made him known, it's exegeomai. It's where we get our English word for, for exegete. He exegetes the Father. He, he unpacks him for us. He reveals to us what he's like. And here's the gift of God to you in salvation. When you, when you see the glory of God, you see your need for it, and you see the way God has made provision for that need in Jesus Christ, it changes everything. It just changes everything. It's a game changer. Think of something that you didn't know you needed until you got it, and then you understood that your heart was made for this. You can't, you can't continue to live without it. You may have seen uh, a video on the internet recently, in the last couple of weeks, of a, of, a, of a grandfather who was colorblind his whole life. He's wearing a gator hat, um, and uh, his kids give him these glasses that you can put on, and you're able to see in color. It takes whatever's wrong visually when you're colorblind and it corrects it so that you can see in color. And his kids give him this gift. Anybody see this? I mean, it, it'll get dusty in your house when you watch it. So he's sitting there on the chair and they give him, he's oh, this is interesting. And he, he puts the glasses on and he looks up and immediately he just starts to weep. He has to take the glasses off right away. He's seeing in color for the very first time. He, he, he puts them back on. He says through tears, it's so clear. I can't believe it. That's what the gift of God in Jesus Christ is. It shows you the glory that you were made to experience. It makes it possible for you to experience it. Here's another silly uh, illustration of this. A couple years ago, uh, Joe LeBlanc gave me for Christmas a tortilla warmer. It's amazing. <laughs> Let me, let me tell you why this is like that. Okay, 
in the in the power rankings of sacred meals at my house, it goes Lord's Supper number one, Taco Night number two. Okay. <laughs> And this tortilla warmer, it like 10x's your Mexican food experience. It's so good. You want, you, want the, you want the soft, warm tortilla. It's just sitting there. It's ready. It's perfect. It's like it just got made. It's fresh. It's delicious. I know you're hungry. It's almost lunchtime. The tortilla warmer, it's amazing. If there was a fire in my house tonight, I would grab my wife, my four kids, and my tortilla warmer on the way out the door. <laughs> Probably not. I mean, you can replace them. They're not one of a kind, but, but you get my point. Why would you go back to eating hard, cold, mediocre tortillas once you've had the tortilla warmer? Guys, what you need more than anything is a glimpse of the glory of God. And when you see Jesus, when you experience the grace that he gives, it opens your eyes and you can't live without it. It's our greatest Need. So how do we see it? Our second point. We see the glory of God in the presence of Jesus Christ. Back to verse 14. He says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. So we're back to this idea of the Word. It's the logos. He used that same word in verse 1. He uses it again here. And, and this is an interesting thing. This would, have, uh, this would have sizzled a little bit for his readers in the first century. You see, by the time John is writing, Greek philosophy has been on the scene for, for a handful of centuries. Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, all the greats, they lived, you know, three, four hundred years before Jesus was born. And so Greek philosophy had already begun to, to take root and to, to shape the ways people were thinking in those days. And, and, and uh, a concept that had emerged through Greek philosophy was this idea of uh, an impersonal force that not only creates the world, but also keeps it together, that, that gives it stability and unity and constancy and rationality. And they called this idea the logos. That's what they called it. And what John is doing is he's taking their word, their concept, and he's saying, you're in the ballpark. You've almost got it, but you're not quite there. This, this logos, it is a force, but it's not an abstract theological concept. It's a person. And that person is the second person of the Godhead. The active agent in creation through whom God creates the world is Jesus, the Son. And what he's saying is this word, this logos, this God has come in human form. He has taken on flesh and dwelt among us. This is world-changing stuff, guys. This means that Jesus came not in the appearance of flesh. He came as flesh. He came as a person. There were, guys, in the first, you know, five, five or so uh, centuries of church history, there were creeds written, bloodshed over the different heresies that sought to attack this doctrine, that Jesus came as fully God and fully man. If we had more time, I'd dive into some of what those were. But this idea is that he is 100% God, 100% man, not 50-50. He's 100%, 100%. And I don't fully understand what that means, but it's what Scripture affirms. And if he's fully man, do you understand what that means? It means he was exactly as you are. His experience was exactly like yours, except he was without sin. He's able to identify with you in your suffering and in your weakness. It's, it's so interesting that John uses the word flesh. It's the Greek word sarx. He could have said man. He could have said human. But, but I think it's very purposeful that he says the word flesh. Because anywhere in Scripture where you see the idea of flesh, it means more than just humanity. It means it carries the idea of human weakness. 
human vulnerability. And so when we finished, I read a portion of this verse earlier, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 6 through 8. He says, All flesh is like grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers. The flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely all people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. He's saying that Jesus, who was co-equal, co-eternal, omnipotent, who spoke the word, the world into existence, this, this God, he became weak like us. So he can identify with you in your weakness. I love a song Rich Mullins wrote right before he died. It's a song called Hard to Get, and it's a prayer that wrestles through, Jesus, do you, do you really understand what it's like to live in the brokenness of this world? And he says in the song, did you ever know loneliness? Did you ever know need? Do you remember just how long a night can get when you are barely holding on and your friends fall asleep and they don't see the blood that's running in your sweat? So even as he progresses through the verse, he's reminding himself that Jesus did experience the weakness and the frailty and the finitude of life in life as skin and bone. Jesus became what he was not without ceasing to be what he was. It's a staggering truth. But that's not all in this verse that staggers us. There's that he says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we've seen his glory. And when they, read, when, the, when they would have read that word for dwelt, a first century Jew would have seen that word, eskinosin, and he would have said, oh my goodness. He would have gasped. The, the hair on the back of his neck would have, stood, would have stood up because that word eskinosin, it means more than just dwelt. It actually carries the idea of, of tabernacled. It means that God pitched his tent among us. And we have seen his glory. And a first century Jew's mind would have immediately gone back to the story of Israel in the wilderness. You see, as, as Moses was leading God's people out of captivity, God would lead them forward in the desert by manifesting his presence among them in the camp. He sent them a, a, a manifestation, an appearing of his presence. He would, he would appear to them as a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire by night. And he would lead them on their journey through the wilderness. And this, this all came into full view when the temple was finally constructed. Solomon builds the magnificent temple to the exact specifications that God's given. And when it's all complete, Solomon holds a solemn assembly where everyone comes together. The word of the Lord is read. Solomon prays and the glory of God fills the temple. So much so that the priests who were offering sacrifices according to the law couldn't continue to make sacrifices. His presence was so thick in the temple. And all of Israel... All of God's people got down on their faces before the Lord. And they said, for he is good. And his steadfast love endures forever. It was the high point of Israel's experience as a nation. But we all know what happened next. Israel was not faithful to the Lord. They went after other gods and sought to be like other nations. And so God sent prophets to call them back to himself. And they did not heed the warnings of the prophets until eventually... God made good on his promise to take away his presence from them. And we see that in Ezekiel chapters 10 and 11 where Ezekiel watches just in abject horror as the glory of God leaves its place above the cherubim on the ark of the Holy of Holies and it exits the temple carried off by a chariot and it goes over the hill to the east and it disappears. The glory of God has left his people. And what John is saying 
is that in Jesus, the glory of God has returned. It is present with us in Jesus Christ. Glory is with us because in Christ, God is with us. He has come to live among us. This is amazing stuff. And this demands a response from our souls when we see it. Dorothy Sayers said it this way. I think this is really helpful. She says, we may call this doctrine exhilarating. We may call it devastating. We may call it revelation or we may call it rubbish. But if we call it dull, what in heaven's name is worthy to be called exciting? Amen? You know, Nikita Khrushchev, who was the atheist communist leader in Russia during the Cold War, after the first cosmonaut, Yuri Gagarin, went into space, he was noted as saying in a speech that his cosmonaut went into outer space, and guess what? They didn't find God there. As these remarks came public, a very wise and enterprising editor at a New York magazine asked C.S. Lewis to make a comment on that statement. And C.S. Lewis said, you know, the really surprising thing would have been if he had actually found God up there. <laughs> Lewis said, because God is, God is the author and the Lord of time. He's not a prisoner of time. He went on to say, trying to find God in space is like Hamlet going into the attic of his castle looking for Shakespeare. He said, if Hamlet wants to prove there's a Shakespeare, he's not going to be able to do it in a lab, nor is he going to be able to find Shakespeare by going up into the top of the stage. The only way he will know something about Shakespeare is if Shakespeare writes himself into the story. And in the incarnation, brothers and sisters, that's exactly what's happened. The playwright has written himself into the story as the main character. The artist has represented himself on the canvas as the point of the art piece. You need to know, too, there is no other religion that has anything like this. Every other religion in the world is, there's the mountain, now you go do your best to climb it. Only Christianity says, there's the mountain, and God came down to you. God is present with his people in Jesus Christ. And guys, you need to know this too. This is a fact of history. This is not fake news. All right? Listen, every one of the disciples affirmed this. Listen to what Peter said, 2 Peter 1, 16. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. John will say later in 1 John 1, 1 and 2, he says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. The disciples were convinced. They were so convinced, in fact, that all of them save one valiantly went to their deaths as a martyr for the incarnation and the resurrection and the deity of Jesus Christ. Every one of them, save one. And the one who survived was John in exile. Jesus' whole family, by the time he ascended, believed that he was the Son of God. And do you know why they all believed it? Because it was true. Because it was true. They saw him up close and they saw that he was he was full of grace and truth. They knew he was the only son from the Father. 
His life measured up to his claims. For the glory of God is seen in the presence of Jesus Christ. And finally, we see his glory and we experience the presence of Jesus through his grace. Look at verse 16. I know I'm skipping verse 15. We're going to get to John the Baptist next week, so I'm going to save that for next week. In verse 16, he says, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Let's go back to Moses for just a minute. When we last left Moses, he was pleading with God for a glimpse of his glory. And what does God say to Moses? He says, Moses, you don't know what you're asking. Because no man can see my glory and live. But here's what I'm going to do, Moses. I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock. And my glory is going to pass by. Just the, just the backward part of it, just the, just the wake behind the boat of my glory is going to pass by you. And you're going to see just the smallest glimpse of my glory. And it says in Exodus 34, 6 through 8, the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, here's what God said, as he was passing by in his glory, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. You better believe he did. God reveals his glory. How? In his grace toward sinners. God reveals his glory by making provision for sinners like you and me to be able to see and know his glory. And here's the thing. That grace comes into full spring bloom at the coming of Jesus Christ. What was given to us in part in Moses is given to us in full in Jesus. It says, from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. And this is a wonderful phrase in the Greek. It means grace in the place of grace. Grace on top of grace. Grace for more grace for more grace. It's the idea that, that grace is this never-ending this, this never fountain that lavishes God's grace Upon us. It's an unbroken series of grace gifts as God takes us from one era of salvation, one era of grace, to the next. Verse 16 and 17 go together. So his conversation about Moses and the law and grace and truth coming for Jesus, it's all grace. That's the point he wants us to see. So you could say it like this God graciously worked through Moses, but he has worked even more graciously through Jesus. So Moses was, God, God mediated his grace through Moses when he had Israel spread the blood of the lamb over the doorpost so that the angel of death would pass over. But in Jesus, the lamb of God has shed his blood to cover our sins in full. So in Moses, God gave his law, his communication of himself but in Christ, Jesus has fulfilled the law perfectly for us, and he has come with grace and truth to save us. Where Moses fed God's people by the hand of God with manna, miraculous bread from heaven, Jesus is the bread of life who invites us to, to eat his flesh and to be nourished, to be strengthened spiritually by all that he is for us. And where God hid Moses in the cleft of the rock and let him see just a glimpse of the wake of his glory, Jesus Christ is the rock of ages who was cleft for us. He was broken for us. 
so that we might see and know the glory of God we were created for. That's grace. It's God's undeserved favor that's demonstrated in Jesus Christ who came to pay the penalty for sin. And this grace, it will change your life if you've seen it. If you've experienced grace, it changes everything. And it's freely available to you. It's not something you can earn. You have to receive it as a gift. The only thing it costs you is your pride. Because Jesus will have you, but not on your terms, only on his. Just like with Moses. Moses, you can't have my glory on your terms. It is only on mine. It must be grace from the first to the last. But here's the wonderful thing about that. It means there is no person on earth who's beyond the reach of his saving grace. There is no sinner, no matter how low, no matter how, self, how much self-loathing you carried in here with you today, that can put you beyond the reach of his grace. You might say, well, thanks, pastor, but you don't know my sin. You don't know how messed up I am. You don't know what I've done. I'll let Charles Spurgeon answer for me. Spurgeon said, you cannot sin so much as God can forgive. If it comes to a pitched battle between sin and grace, you shall not be so bad as God is good. Amen? Grace. It's God's undeserved favor. It is the message of Christianity. I want to share with you my favorite illustration of this that I've come across recently. It's a story that's found in the book Proof by Daniel Montgomery and Timothy Paul Jones. It's a book about grace, and Timothy Paul Jones tells the story of their daughter whom they adopted when she was eight years old. And she had been adopted once before, only to have that adoption dissolved and go back into the dependency care system. And the family that had adopted this little girl before, they came to find out, liked to take trips to Disney World, but they would not take this little girl with them when they would go. They would leave her with caregivers. And the rest of the family would go without her. This was a point of major pain, obviously, and devastation for this little girl. And so as soon as they knew that this was the case, they decided to schedule a trip to Disney World. And here's what Timothy Paul Jones writes about this. He said, In the month leading up to our trip to the Magic Kingdom, she stole food when a simple request would have gained her a snack. She lied when it would have been easier to tell the truth. She whispered insults that were carefully crafted to hurt her older sister as deeply as possible. And as the days on the calendar moved closer to the trip, her mutinies multiplied. A couple of days before our family headed to Florida, I pulled our daughter into my lap to talk through her latest escapade. I know what you're going to do, she stated flatly. You're not taking me to Disney World, are you? The thought hadn't actually crossed my mind, but her downward spiral suddenly started to make some sense to me. She knew she couldn't earn her way into the magic kingdom. And she had tried and failed that test several times before. So she was living in a way that placed her as far as possible from the most magical place on earth. And so I asked her, is this trip something we're doing as a family? She nodded, brown eyes wide and filling with tears. Are you a part of this family? She nodded again. Then you're going with us. Sure, there may be some consequences to help you remember what's right and what's wrong, but you're part of our family and we're not leaving you behind. I'd like to say that her behaviors grew better after that moment. They didn't. Her choices pretty much spiraled out of control at every hotel and rest stop along the way to Lake Buena Vista. 
Still, we headed to Disney World on the day we had promised, and it was a typical Disney day. Overpriced tickets, overpriced meals, lots of lines, mingled with just enough manufactured magic to consider maybe going again someday. (laughs) And in our hotel room that evening, a very different child emerged. She was exhausted, pensive, and a little weepy at times, but her month-long facade of rebellion had faded. And when bedtime rolled around, I prayed with her, held her in my arms, and asked, So how was your first day at Disney World? And she closed her eyes and snuggled down into her stuffed unicorn. After a few minutes, she opened her eyes ever so slightly. Daddy, she said, I finally got to go to Disney World. But it wasn't because I was good. It's because I'm yours. That's the message of outrageous grace. Grace isn't, a fav- isn't, isn't favor that you can achieve by being good. It's a gift that you can receive by being God's. Christian, are you God's today? Are you living in the good that that, that that work of Jesus Christ has secured for you? If you are in him, if you are God's, all that's Christ's is yours. If you're not a Christian why wouldn't you want to get in on this? You can become one today. Turn from your sin. Trust in Jesus Christ. He has made known the glory of God to you. He has come. He's, he's made himself known to you that, so that he might save you. And he has lavished his grace upon you. Let's pray. Sarah Banks. I'm in the ninth grade. I go to community Christian school, and my parents are Doug and Holly Banks. I was raised in a Christian home, and I pretty much always knew about God. Um, There wasn't really a time that I didn't know Him. It was more a knowledge, but not a belief of God. I didn't. I knew about God and all of His stories. But it wasn't a true, firm belief in him at that time. God really showed me my need for Jesus in seventh grade. When I went through a time where I had all my sins were on me, and I felt that I needed to share them. I had to just, like, get them off my back. And I feel like that was the time when God really convicted me and showed me that he was there. Um... And my mom um, would write scriptures down on cards so whenever I would get a thought of a sin that happened, it would help me to get rid of it, basically. And then also in um, seventh and eighth grade, a teacher pushed the subject of um, daily time with God. And I had never really done that before, but I felt like God was urging me to do that. And so it helped me through, I guess, transitioning into high school to spend more time with him. My heart really responded to God recently at a Sadie Robertson event that I went to where she really talked about being fearless. And I had always struggled with going up in front of people and talking to them and just being in front of people, Um, but that 
really helped me to confront that and basically get rid of it and get that off my back. I want to get baptized today to follow in Jesus' footsteps and obey his word. And I also want to make a public profession of my faith in front of the church. Doug and Holly, what a great privilege, honor to, to, to baptize Sarah today. Sarah, um, are you professing faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and trusting in him alone for your salvation? And why do you want to be baptized today? To publicly profess my faith. It's our privilege as your pastors, your father, to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Hi, my name is Katie Mulroney. Um, I'm in ninth grade and I go to CCS Community Christian School. Um, I was born into a family of believers and my parents always did a good job of um, teaching me about God and um, bringing me to church and I, and I listened to Adventures in Odyssey which were like Bible stories that, um, that really helped me to understand it, understand the Bible stories better. Um, when I was five I went to a vacation Bible school and they um, just finished telling all of us about, about what, um, what it means to have a personal relationship with Christ. And um, they asked if anybody wanted to accept Jesus into their hearts. And um, I can't say I remember what happened, but something had to have been like, Katie, raise your hand. So I did, and they took me outside, and um, they prayed with me, and, um, and I asked Jesus into my heart. We then moved here to Tallahassee, and as I got older, um, I think I was introduced to like more of like you know what was good and what was bad, and more introduced to um, how like sinful this world is that we live in, and um, it was just a little thing. But I I started to develop like a fear of like the dark, and um, and my dad put verses above my bed, and we would read them together every night. And one of them was, um, that really stuck with me, was Matthew 10, 31, Do not be afraid, you are worth more than many sparrows. Um, God really used that verse in my life because those fears that were just of the dark turned into, you know, um, fears of if I was going to fit in at school or um, just fears of I, I wasn't confident in who I was and um, I thought I had to be like everybody else. But... Um, Knowing that verse, do not be afraid, you're worth more than many sparrows, just reminded me, like, I don't have to be afraid, you know, God is always with me, um, and I'm just worth, I'm, I'm worth it, I'm worth more than many sparrows. I want to get baptized today because I feel like it's um, the next step in my walk with the Lord, and um, I want to publicly proclaim my faith in Jesus Christ. What a privilege um, it is to, to be here, witness your public, public proclamation of Jesus Christ. Um, Chris and Lori, it's a, great, it's a great honor to be here. Chris is here. Grandpa Ken, all the way from Rhode Island, um, to be here a part of this, and we're glad you're here. Kate, are you professing faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and trusting in him alone for your salvation? Yes. And why do you want to be baptized? To take the next step in my walk with the Lord and to publicly proclaim my faith in Jesus Christ. 
It's our great privilege as your pastors to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. My name is Luke Pfeiffer. I'm in the eighth grade. I go to Montford Middle School. My parents are Robin Shannon Pfeiffer. Every blessing to my heart to so growing up, I've always known the story of Jesus. I've always been in the church. I've, no, I've always known what he's done here on earth. But it hasn't been the past couple of months where I've read through his word. I've learned like, like the good and the bad news of the gospel, how we sin every day and that we deserve God, God's wrath. But if we, if we repent from our sins and that we believe and trust in Jesus, that he is our Lord and Savior, that we can live eternally with him in heaven. The way God has been using the gospel in my life is um, with middle school. Um, I've met a lot of people over the past few years who don't know Christ, who don't know his story, who don't know what he's done. But this has really helped me spread his word to other people who do not know him and how they can be saved and live with God eternally. The reason I want to get baptized today is I want to make a public profession of my faith in Jesus Christ. Great privilege uh, to join Rob and you and Shannon and the whole Piper family as we celebrate Luke, your new life in Christ. So let me just ask you two questions. Are you trusting in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation and for the forgiveness of your sins? I am. And why do you want to be baptized today? I want to make a public profession of my faith in Jesus Christ. Well, Luke, it is our, our great privilege as not only your pastors, but this is your dad, your spiritual father to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Hi, my name is Aiden Pfeiffer. I'm in the 11th grade at Charles High School, and my parents are Rob and Shannon Pfeiffer. I've always grown up in a Christian home. I've been going to church for as long as I can remember. Um, I've always been taught the, the gospel and Jesus, the story and stuff, and I've kind of just always believed it just because it has been taught to me. fully understand the gospel until recently, because last year I, was, I found myself in a real pattern of sin that I was hiding from my family and from people. It wasn't until December that by God's grace that he brought to light all the sin that I was doing, and it showed me how sinful my heart is, and showed me how God showed His grace and forgiveness on me. So now I have a true understanding of what it means to be forgiven and to have a walk with Jesus Christ. Because of that, I'm ready to make my public profession of faith in Jesus Christ through baptism today. And it's a great privilege as your pastor to baptize you and your father as well. So let me ask you two questions. One, do you profess faith in Lord Jesus Christ, and are you trusting in Him alone for the forgiveness of your sins? Yes, I am. And why would you like to be baptized today? Uh, to use as a public profession of my faith in Jesus Christ. Well, and it is our great privilege now to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.